So if you'll meet me in Acts chapter 13. The text says this. Now, they, now there were in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues to the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came to a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with a proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that was the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Our Heavenly Father, we need your assistance to hear and to receive and to live out your word. And therefore, Father, we pray this morning that you would send your Holy Spirit to grant to us a supernatural ability to hear your voice in your word and that, Lord, our lives would respond in loving obedience to all that you would have for us here in this passage. Father, we need you and we ask you to help us in Jesus' name. Amen. How close have you come to death? And when you realized that it wasn't your time to die, how relieved were you? Gloria and I celebrated our 10-year anniversary this year and her gift to me was a flying lesson and so yesterday afternoon I climbed into a plane and was able to steer this small aeroplane for about 15 minutes I personally think that was just Gloria's attempt at getting a life insurance payout but <laughs> but but here I am but but do, do you all remember the moment do you remember that scene when all of Samaria were facing death, staring death in the face. In the book of Two Kings, we are told, quote, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, 
mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it. And then later we read this. Now, there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate. That is the gate of Samaria. And they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, let us enter the city, the famine is in the city and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So now come. Let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army. So that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was and fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. Then they said to one another, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household. Good news has to be shared, doesn't it? Good news has to be announced. When you hear that war has ended, when you hear that the baby has been born in perfect health, when you receive the all clear from the doctor, you have to announce that kind of news because good news has to be shared. Well, five months ago, we began a series in the book of Acts, the book of the Bible that narrates the early church taking the gospel all the way around the world. This news that a savior had been born who lived a life without sin, who died on the cross in our place and for our sin, who rose on the third day, who ascended into heaven and is now willing to receive all who come to him in repentance and faith. And the gospel had so far, in the book of Acts, gone from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria. But it had been commanded to go to the ends of the earth. And so far in our study of Acts, the gospel had, gone from, uh, had, had arrived in Syria, where this church had been planted in the city of Antioch. But today, in Acts chapter 13, we have re- reached the pivotal moment in the book of Acts. The moment where the gospel went from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to going from the beginning to the rest of the world. Think about this. The reason that there's a church today in Hoylake is because Paul, Barnabas and John Mark undertook the first missionary journey which created other missionaries who took the gospel to other nations so that all these years later, here we are today. And the reason missionaries are still being sent today, the reason churches are still being planted all around the world today, 
is because we are still caught up in the inertia of what happened in Acts chapter 13. Look at how Luke sets the scene for us again in Acts chapter 13 verse 1. It says, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manain, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Here's the point for us today. God's spirit calls God's people to God's work. God's spirit calls God's people to God's work. And my hope today is that every believer in this room would catch fresh fire, a renewed vision for the evangelization of Hoylake and the Wirral and the world. Henry Martin, a missionary to India, once said this, the spirit of Christ is the spirit of missions. And the nearer we get to Christ, the more intensely missionary we become. And so if you hear about Barnabas and Paul and John Mark crossing the sea to share the gospel but you don't feel inspired to cross the street to share the gospel, then something is wrong. Something's wrong with my preaching. Something's wrong with your listening. Or something's wrong with both. And so let's tread very carefully today on the holy ground of Acts chapter 13. God's spirit calls God's people to God's work. The question for us today is this, what did that involve? What did that work Involved, And the first thing it involved we see there is proclamation. Look at verse 7 with me. It says, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, and that was the closest port of Cyprus, 130 miles away from Seleucia, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, which probably just means an attendant of sorts, and the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. And so the first task that the Holy Spirit commissioned these men with was the work of proclamation. The work of proclaiming God's word. Think for a moment a a herald. An old town crier who arrives in a town or a city or, or a village to announce a message given from the king. One preacher illustrated it like this. He said, hear ye, hear ye, hear ye all rebels, insurgents, dissidents and protesters against the king, hear the royal decree. A great day of reckoning is coming. A day of justice and vengeance. But now hear this, all inhabitants of the king's realm. Amnesty is herewith published by the mercy of your sovereign. A price has been paid. All debts may be forgiven. All rebellion absolved. Lay down the weapons of rebellion. Kneel in submission. 
Receive the royal amnesty as a gift of imperial love. Swear fealty to your sovereign and rise a free and happy subject of your king. And why was that the the first work, work to which these men were called? Because God's word creates God's blessing. God's work creates God's blessing. I want us all to take our first finger and I want us to press the rewind button on our Bible. And I want us to go past the book of Acts, rewind all the way past the New Testament, all the way through the Old Testament. And I want us to rewind all the way to the beginning of time itself. Because in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 we read this, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. Did you hear that? Before God's word had been proclaimed, the earth was without form and void. That means it was chaotic and it means it was empty. But then we read in Genesis, and God said, and God said, and God said over and over again in Genesis chapter 1. And what happened when God said? Well, the chaos disappeared and glorious structure arrived. And the void was no more because fullness had taken its place. So that when Mark and when Saul and when Barnabas got out of the boat and arrived in Salamis, the people they encountered there had souls that were without form and void because God's word hadn't been proclaimed into their ears. Without form and void, chaotic and empty. Even in the Jewish synagogues, even in the very places where the scriptures were possessed, their souls were without form and void because the Holy Spirit hadn't blown on the proclamation of God's word to create form and to create fullness. So imagine for a moment a person's soul like thousands of pieces of shards of glass. And then God's word is preached in Holy Spirit power. All of the shards of glass assemble. And the form is there to contain the blessing of God just the way a glass can contain wine. And that is what the word of God could do for the Jews in these synagogues. That's what the word of God could do for the whole island of Paphos. That's what the word of God would do for Sergius Paulus, this man of intelligence. And that is what the word of God can do for us. What the word of God can do for you. It can take your broken heart and it can piece it together in order for the form to be there to house the fullness of the blessing of God. Take away all the tossing and turning, all the chaos and emptiness, and give it the structure needed for God's blessing to fill you up from the bottom to the top. Friends, psychology can't do that for you. Politics can't do that for you. Social enterprises can't do that for you. Only the life-giving word of God can do that for you. And when I look around the world today, I don't know about you, but personally I see a whole lot of chaos and emptiness and darkness. If you don't 
see that. Either your eyes are painted onto your face or you and I live on very different planets. And why is that true? Well, friends, the reason there's chaos and emptiness out there is because there is chaos and emptiness in here. The world out there is a reflection of what is in here. The world outside only mirrors what is on the inside of our hearts. It's why someone like Mick Jagger could have all that the world could ever have to offer and yet travel the world singing every night, I can't get me no satisfaction. It's why there's chaos in homes all around the world. It's why there's chaos in people's minds and why the ever-growing list of mental illnesses seems to grow with every passing year. It's why people self-harm. It's why the number one prescribed drug in the United States is antidepressants. It's why young men of my age and a bit older and a bit younger are more likely to die of suicide now than ever before. What's the answer? The proclamation of God's word. If you're here today and you'd say, Hugh, honestly, that's me. Without form and void, chaotic and empty. And darkness covering the surface of my soul. But then I come here and I hear you lot singing your hearts out. And I hear you praying together. And I hear the word of God being preached. And I know from the bottom of my heart that this is what my soul needs. Allow me to say the reason the word of God can turn it all around for you, friend, is because the word of God concerns the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And this Jesus Christ can make all grace to abound to you. If you're here today and you're hungry, go to Jesus. He's the bread of life. If you're here today and you are thirsty, Go, friend, to Jesus. He has rivers of life for you that will never leave you thirsty again. If you're here today and you are weary in soul and weary in mind, go to Jesus. He has rest for you. If you're here today and you're lost, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. If you're here today and you feel like your life is just darkness from beginning to end, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. If you're here today and you feel like you're the living dead, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me will live even though he die. Go to Jesus, the Son of God in the Word of God, and have your life changed forever. God's Spirit calls God's people to God's work. Number one, proclamation. And number two, confrontation. Look with me at verse 8. It says, but Elymas the magician, for that magician is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. 
So Paul and Barnabas were called to confront this enemy of God. Why? Because while Paul and Barnabas were seeking to bring people to Jesus, this enemy of God was seeking to push people away from Jesus. And that as someone neck deep in the occult, the word of God would have been repugnant to him. And yet, he didn't want this Sergius Paulus to hear the word because if the proconsul got saved, then Elymas would get fired because all of his magic tricks would be seen for what they were. And, and Paul's confrontation with him had to be this dramatic. It had to be this extreme because Elymas had a, a veneer of godliness which was hiding his true motives. His name was Bar-Jesus, which means son of Jesus or son of salvation. But in reality, he was a son of the devil. Jesus is the king of righteousness, but Bar-Jesus was the enemy of all righteousness, says Paul. Jesus is full of grace and truth, but Bar-Jesus was full of deceit and villainy, out to make crooked what Jesus had made straight. And so he ended up receiving what he himself was trying to bestow on other people, blindness. Now, what are we supposed to do with a narrative like this one? Because confrontation is still needed today, isn't it? False teachers abound. False teachers are in your pocket, in your phone, and you can listen to them whenever you want to. So should I be traveling the world trying to blind them all? It seems to me that God's spirit calls God's people or God's ministers to confront the enemies of God in more of a long haul kind of a way. What I mean is this. God's ministers are to create such an appetite for healthy teaching within God's people that the moment false teaching comes their way, they hear it immediately and they reject it. And that none of you would be fooled just because someone has the title pastor in front of their name, but instead you're so used to getting teaching, I hope and pray, that brings you closer to Jesus. The moment you hear teaching that seeks to pull you away from Jesus, you reject it and walk in the other direction. This past week, I was reminded of uh, a blog that I read several years ago uh, by a guy called Tim Challies. And Tim Challies marks uh, seven identifiers of a false teacher. And I want to read them to you. He says, number one, false teachers are man-pleasers. At heart, these false teachers are not interested in looking good in the eyes of God. They're only interested in looking good in the eyes of men. And he goes on, he says, second, false teachers bring their harshest criticism against God's most faithful servants. He says, I'm sure you've seen this before. They always save their most brutal attacks for the people who love God the most and serve God the best. Third, false teachers teach their own wisdom rather than God's wisdom. God said to Jeremiah, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. That was true in Jeremiah's day. That's true in our day. Fourth mark of a false teacher. False teachers ignore what is of greatest importance to focus instead on what is of lesser importance. They always place great emphasis on small commandments while they blatantly ignore the great ones. 
the important ones. Fifth, false teachers mask their false doctrine with eloquent speech and impressive logic. A false teacher can't bring a consistent interpretation of the Bible, so what does he do? He hides blasphemy and dangerous doctrine behind what seems to be a powerful argument. Behind this eloquent use of language he he offers to his listeners, the spiritual equivalent of a beautiful, attractive piece of candy that's laced with deadly poison. It appears scrumptious, valuable, delicious, but it will still kill you dead. Six, false teachers are far more concerned with winning others to their own opinions than in actually helping people and bettering people's lives. Honestly, they don't care about you. They care about themselves. They want your loyalty, they want your money, they want your body, they want something, anything. Seventh, false teachers exploit their followers. False teachers take advantage of people. They take advantage of their ignorance, advantage of their greed, advantage of their lust or immaturity or anything so that they can exploit them. They find people who long for money. They promise them money. They find people who are consumed with lust. They promise They can fulfill those lusts. That's exactly why Peter warns in 2 Peter 2, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Now, I've never done this before in my years of preaching, but Luke, our author, does it. So he's given me permission today. Luke just straight up names a false teacher by Jesus. So I'm about to name some names for you. Now, if HEC is your home, my guess is you've never heard of these people. In fact, if HEC is your home, you might not even have the internet. We're quite old school, aren't we, as a church? But let me say this. If any of you are listening to Bill Johnson, Joel Osteen, Creflo Dollar, Benny Hinn, Paula White, Kenneth Copeland, Stephen Furtick, Steve Chalk, Joyce Meyer, please stop. The reason those men, the reason those women are able to dress in sheep's clothing is because they have already killed one sheep. Don't be the next one. God's spirit calls God's people to God's work. That involves proclamation, second confrontation, and lastly, salvation. Please look at verse 12. It says, Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, For he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Proclamation, confrontation, and lastly, gloriously, salvation. I know it feels odd for us to devote an entire point of a sermon to one verse. But the salvation of the proconsul was the very reason that Barnabas And Saul and John Mark had crossed the sea in the first place. To see Saul saved for Jesus Christ. And this was their direct order from headquarters. Jesus said in Matthew 28, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. 
And friends, salvation is the highest priority of the church because salvation addresses the deepest need of lost men and women. The Bible says God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And he has given proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Do you live on the world? Do you live in the world? Then you will be judged one day by Jesus Christ. And elsewhere the Bible says it is appointed once for a man to die. And after that the judgment. And friend on that day. When we are brought before the white throne of Christ. And brought before the infinitely just standards of his law. Our good will. Our good intentions and our good works will count for nothing. The only thing that will count for anything in that terrifying moment is that we have been able to say, he loved me and he gave himself for me. The punishment that I deserved, he endured. And the resurrection that I now experience, he rose in my place. Rico Tai says this, he says, right at the heart of London is the Old Bailey the home of British justice. At the top is the golden statue of Lady Justice. She holds the scales of justice in one hand and the sword of judgment in the other. The message is clear. If we are found to be guilty, then the sword of judgment must fall. But just across the London skyline from the Old Bailey, on top of St. Paul's Cathedral, is another golden symbol. It's a cross and it is a powerful reminder that though the sword of God's judgment must fall, it fell on Jesus Christ. And just as the Jews took refuge in their homes with the blood of a lamb sprinkled over the lintels and over the doorposts as the angel of death passed their way, so are we to take refuge beneath the cross of Jesus Covered in his blood. How? Only by faith. By faith alone. By simply trusting that Jesus shed his blood for me. That Jesus died for me. That Jesus bore the wrath of God against my sin for me. That Jesus loved me and went there for me. You don't need to impress God with a flowery speech and an apology. You don't need to read the whole Bible before you can come to God. You don't need to clean up your act before you can approach God's seat. You just believe. You don't need to move an inch to the right. You don't need to move an inch to the left. Right where you are sat today, you just believe and you are saved. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This might be your first time here today at Hoy Lake Evangelical Church. You can call on the name of the Lord, and you can be saved today. This might be your 10,000th time at Hoy Lake Evangelical Church. You were here before I got here as pastor, and you can call on the name of the Lord today, And be saved in a single moment simply by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. But to us believers, here's what I would say to you as we close. 
If you are not fishing, you are not following. Follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. If you are not fishing, then you are not following Jesus. Because like Saul and Barnabas and John Mark, we too have received a message from headquarters. We've been commanded to make disciples of all nations because the need is still the same. And I know you're not the Apostle Paul. I know I'm not the Apostle Paul. But friends, it is the message, not the messenger that counts. Please don't think of Saul as a Christian superhero with his cape flapping in the wind on top of some big building somewhere. Now he said, I came to you in fear and much trembling. He says, I came to you to preach the gospel with my knees knocking together. I came to you with an open Bible with my hands shaking so much it was hard for me to to turn the pages. Because it's not about me. It's not the messenger that counts. It's the message that counts. And the gospel is the power of God to salvation to all who believe. And friends, some will oppose us, some will ridicule us, some will reject us, some will hate us. But Jesus loves us. And Jesus says, I'm with you always, even until the end of the age. Go therefore and make disciples. God's spirit calls God's people to God's work. He calls them to proclamation He calls them to confrontation and he calls them to salvation. And can I say as I close, if you're here today and you know you need to get saved today, I want to talk to you this morning and I'd love to have that conversation with you. Let me pray for us and then we'll sing. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for a message that saves Father, we thank you that the gospel is the power of God to salvation for all who believe. And that, Lord, we don't need to add a single ounce of our good deeds to it because the blood of Jesus Christ is enough to cleanse us from all sin. Lord, I pray that you would be touching hearts here today, drawing irresistibly men and women to Christ and receiving from him a justification that could never be earned or merited or deserved. Lord, we pray that you would work powerfully among the individuals gathered here today and powerfully among us as a church, as we seek to make disciples. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.